Hello, and welcome back to the Brothers Book Club podcast. We're here taking a break, which for us means reading and discussing more literature. That I think that counts as a break. That's my idea of a vacation anyway. Uh, we're taking a break from the book reviews this week, though I'm probably going to do one on Dickens anyway. And that's because we have a special episode. We have a book club this week. If you've been with us for a long time, like over a year or a year and a half, whenever we started this uh, endeavor, you might know that book clubs are when we do a deep dive on a on a selected work or a book. Ryan and I started the podcast this way. And so this episode will be dedicated to a story we'll get to in a second, but we will be doing full spoilers since that's the term we use in 2020. We'll be diving into the entire text, not holding anything back, not reserving anything. Though the pod is meant for or intended for people who have read the work, you certainly don't have to to enjoy the show. In fact, it might serve as a kind of long form recommendation of sorts. So by the end, maybe you'd be intrigued or not into getting into this novel. Um, joining me today is not my brother, though I guess, you know, we can add you as an honorary family member if you want, Amanda. But it is a, a friend of the pod, Amanda, who joined us on the Jane Austen episode. Was that a week or two ago? I want to say it was like a couple weeks ago. Yeah. There you go. And she's back. Thankfully, it's extremely good for me to have someone else to talk to here. Otherwise, it's just me staring at my wall talking about books, which isn't as cool as it sounds, though. I know it sounds pretty cool. <laughs> I wouldn't mind. Yeah, no, I think we've all been there. I was do I was doing it anyway. So I just started recording. <laughs> I think a lot of uh, successful podcasts start off that way. You just take something you were doing anyway, and then you just start putting it out into the world, I guess. Yeah, well, then by putting it out into the world, you seem a little less insane talking to the wall about books. Absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> and, I did feel, and I did feel for the wall. It doesn't deserve this. <laughs> so Amanda's here, which again, we're so grateful to have her back. And who knows, maybe this will become a regular thing. Fingers crossed. And we're here to talk about what novel, Amanda, since you, I'm not going to say you hoisted this upon me, but you did spark <laughs> the idea. You did seed the idea in my mind. Um, so uh, you were talking about uh, reading some of Goethe's uh, uh, maxims. So I said, oh, I've got a copy of The Sorrows of Young Werther. And so that's that's what we read. That's right. Goethe is back. Though I thought I put him to bed last week. No, he, we've resurrected him this week. <laughs> decided to revisit and do a follow-up, which I think, you know, we haven't done a lot of that in the Penguin Review episodes yet. We haven't done a lot of follow-up episodes on authors, but whenever I get a chance to do one, and we've done a few, I think it's worthwhile. It's good to go a little deeper. The Penguin editions are nice, and I really like the amount of reading in them. You know, they're each 50 to 60 pages, so they're bite-sized, but by doing the collection, you get a just such a wide sampling, but this is nice. It was enjoyable to take a deeper look at some, some writings by one author. So. Yeah, he, he was, uh, I, I liked that. I had this book already, but I'd never read it. Um, but it's a short novel, which was nice. It's not like we were delving into like a Dickens sized novel <laughs> for this. Yeah, which, certainly, which, yeah, frankly, I think, I try and reserve that kind of dedicated reading time for things I know, things I've researched and I know I'll probably enjoy. I feel like Penguin has taken up my, because I don't know if you're this way with reading, but I do try and reserve some of my reading time and energy for challenging things that I know I might not like, but think I should do anyway, you know, mm -hmm. um, which is weird because I don't do that with any other media. I don't do that with music or games or movies or shit. Like if, it, if I don't like it, I'm just going to pass. Right. Um, but for some reason with books, I feel... I don't know, like obligated to at least 
delve into things that are challenging or things that require, I don't know, attention. So anyway, I feel like this Penguin Collection takes that up for me. And so the rest of my reading time, I want to pick out things I think I'll enjoy. Yeah, that I agree. Like, uh, I'm, I'm surprised that there is no Foucault in the Penguin series. <laughs> uh, there's not. But that's a reference that... Um, <laughs> the two of us will understand <laughs> deeply, which is that when we did a, we used to do a Charlotte area book club where we live. And, and in that, Amanda chose a Foucault book to read. It was about what? Insanity or something? Madness, yep. I think. Yep. And Madness I, yeah, it had its chapters is what I'll say. I think that's my final judgment is that there <laughs> were chapters in there I thought um, were illuminating and insightful and everything, but it was a long, dense read. And the book club, I think, bounced off it pretty roundly <laughs> yeah in a pretty in a pretty summary way that it but not many people i think finish that one but that's okay yeah this book though perfect contrast to that one perfect segue because as you mentioned this was a very brief novel my dover thrift edition which cost me i think 250 online or three dollars it will i think is 80 or 90 pages so it really is pretty light lifting now i still think and we'll get into this in the second when we dive in with questions but I think it's still a pretty dense read. It's not like a young adult accessibility level of I'm going to fly through these 300 pages, you know, in two afternoons out of entertainment. And so, you know, you get a dense 90 pages, but it is brief and it does not take that long to finish it, which is nice. Yeah, it is brief, but like you said, yeah, it can be dense in some po- uh, parts, especially um, after I heard your podcast about the maxims and stuff. I was like, mm-hmm. oh, those ideas were developed actually in the novel. So, yeah, I think it would be a very rich crossover, though. I'll admit when I was and it's funny, too, I won't say any much about the maxims podcast. People can go find it. But I like I said, it felt so overwhelming. It, like when you throw that many ideas out there, I forget. You know, on the hundredth idea, I forgot the fifty seventh idea. This mm-hmm. is kind of a thing, yeah. and so I can't say none of them stuck with me so resoundingly that when I was reading this, I thought about them much. Because again, I think the effect of reading those that collection of maxims was just it was just like tsunami wave, and I was like, ah, I'm not I'm not going to remember any of these. Some of them were interesting. There was like one or two that I thought touched on something unique, or I don't know, said something in a peculiar way. But I don't know. It it did feel overwhelming to have to try and remember. Yeah, I'd imagine. Yeah. Um, So for those unfamiliar, as I alluded to a few minutes ago, we're doing a book club today, which is a deep dive, full review, full spoilers, whatever, whatever. We have a format for this that Ryan and I have used in the past. I think Amanda and I are going to trod down the same path today with, you know, maybe we'll deviate from it. We like to start with fill in the blanks is just kind of a fun, I don't know, way to get the conversation going, way to entertaining way to kick things off. And so I wrote one down here. Why don't I throw it to you first? Yeah. The fill in the blank for The Sorrows of Young Werther is if I were forced to begin a letter correspondence with someone in the year 2020 this year, it would be blank because of blank. What do you think for this one? Um, I was thinking about that and I was like, oh, man, is it uh, what would I who would I even talk to? But I the person that I would choose I'm, was um, my mentor when I was teaching in Korea um she's um yeah she's a lady who is uh very wise and and very thoughtful but i've lost touch with her over time just because you know moving to a different country and stuff like that um so i would love to get back in touch with her and chat with her and um i chose her specifically because she's somebody that if i start a correspondence it's something where 
writing a letter is a very intimate thing, I feel. So yeah, right. I would want it to be with somebody that I'm already comfortable with that I can kind of not only have like a discussion about how I'm feeling at the time, but also somebody that I can have an academic discussion and philosophical discussion. And I think that she would embody all of that for me. And doing and doing cross country. I mean, I don't even know. I don't think I've ever sent a letter out of country. Probably not since probably not since doing pen pal things in elementary school. And I don't even remember if that was like authentic or if we had pen pals like in a different country. So I don't, that could be fascinating. That would only increase the excitement of getting a letter. I don't yeah. know how long it takes. I mean, I, I, um, I'm going to cheat on this prompt uh, and I should have written one that I would have had a better answer with. I actually do this with my mom uh, and I do, ah. we kind of started it this year. Uh, it was an idea that I had last year and we started doing these postcard things and so, I mean, I do it just to, I, I agree with you. I feel like it demands a different type of thought and reflection, you know, than a yeah. text or phone call. And so when I write one, I try and think of things that aren't just, here's what I did this week, which is usually deeply uninteresting anyway. <laughs> I don't know. I struggle with that because it's like, I don't know. What did I do this week? I don't know. I mean, it's just, is it worth telling you about? I mean, it, I don't know. So I feel like the... The format itself just invites deeper reflection, which, you know, this novel backs that up, I suppose. Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah, that would be, uh, well, this is your 2020 challenge then. See if you can find an address for your mentor in another country. So good luck. <laughs> <laughs> which is actually being quarantined right now, apparently for the coronavirus, so... Right. Yeah. Yeah. That, that region of the world is in like a semi-lockdown, man. Seriously. <laughs> yeah, geez. Well, maybe the letter will get there by 2021. Again, I have no idea. I, I can we ship things across oceans all the time now. This is the the kind of rule of the day. But yeah, I have no clue how long that would take to get a letter. Just simple postage stuff to another country. Yeah, it's like a week to two weeks, depending. Okay, yeah, things I'm ignorant of. I know that my mom gets the postcards we do. I think pretty quickly, three days, maybe two, yeah. three days. So you know, that's going halfway across the U.S. Well, let's use that because I think hitting on the, the intimacy uh, intimacy part or the sort of revealing nature of this correspondence of letter correspondence is a good a place to start as any mm -hmm. because The Sorrows of Young Werther is essentially just an extended and frankly, if we wanted to, and this is I'll start off my first question by just giving a statement first because I'm a jerk of a podcast host. <laughs> I don't think it really benefits from the correspondence at all because it's one sided. It's this is actually like a diary novel. This is just a journal or a diary. <laughs> the, we never read any like counter response. And so I don't know. I mean, I guess it was a style of the day sort of thing. Reading a series of letters he writes to someone and, and just the, with the character that's presented at the center of this, Werther, it's not like I feel like he's lying in the correspondence, which I think could have been the only other kind of structural tweak to put into it, which is like, oh, I'm reading these letters, but they're so one-sided. I wonder if any of it's truthful. His character's whole thing is that he he will not, he doesn't want to mislead anyone about himself and he wears all of his passions on his sleeve as the expression goes. Right. So I don't think, I think it benefited from being a first person story, mm -hmm. but I don't think it benefited for to me for being a, a letter-based novel. I'm not sure if you felt the same way. Yeah, I, I think that... The one thing that could, I guess, be a benefit from from his style was that you, William, who's the person that he was writing to, um, obviously did write him back because he 
Werther would sometimes right. have a response to, you're right, I should do this, or you're right, I uh-huh. should do that. So I think that maybe what Goethe was trying to do was to have a voice of reason that he's writing to, and yeah. then he still rejects that reason in in order to pursue his passion. Oh, and at the end, it's you're right. He the way that it shows up, or the way the the responses show up, is in summaries. There, it's like a sentence where he says, "In your previous letter, you know, you told me to leave this place that I need to get away." Right. And he, you know, then he, of course, will you know spend ten sentences on, oh, and and that's a reasonable response, but I, I don't think I'm going to listen to you, and yeah. I think I'm going to stay here. So no, it's it's definitely present. I just, I guess, I question is the presence enough to change it. It, again, if this were a diary, would it feel so different? I don't know. I mean, I those those moments were so few and far between. I suppose that I just didn't. He could have easily just counter argued with himself in his diary. Yeah. And so like, oh, oh, diary. You know, I I know that there are limits to my passions and that reason dictates. And yeah, like that's you change like five words and it's the same thing. Mm-hmm. So again, I just. I think, again, overall being in the first person and the amount of intimacy, I think that's the strength of the novel. It's a psychological deep dive, essentially. So that right. definitely worked. Like the fact that this person is a, a true confidant for him is is crucial. Like it makes the whole thing go. Mm-hmm. But I, yeah, I don't know. Again, the letter writing aspect, it's just, especially at the end, since at the end it takes a turn and there's like another narrator who jumps in after Werther commits suicide. So just, you know, again, we're spoiling all of this, but that's, yeah, that's <laughs> how it concludes. Um, that I think had kind of an interesting twist. Did that change anything for you narratively? Did you feel differently at the end? Yeah, I was like, well, it ties into, I don't know um, what translation you have. Um, and I don't know whether you got the first edition or the second edition that was that he released. Mm. But um, at the very beginning, I've got like a in mine. It starts off with, let me find it real quick. Sorry. It says, um, whatever I could find, and this is, I'm assuming the the other narrator, not Werther, but the actual narrator of the the story, whatever I could find concerning the story of poor Werther, I have collected and presented to you here with in the belief that you will thank me for it. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da. So the, the introduction of the narrator was actually at the very beginning before the story itself. And then towards the end after um, once he starts really losing it and um, meets up, sees the guy who had murdered his, um, his loves boyfriend or suitor or whatever. That's when it, that's when the, the narrator pops back in. But yeah, I was kind of like, well, I see he's tying those two things together, but I didn't know like, I guess it was meant to be an outward look into the descent of Werther because we only have Werther's perspective and it's not until the narrator comes back in that we get a different perspective. Yeah. And to be clear, comes back in means 90% of this novel is just the Werther letters. It's, It's the very first half page, not even a half page that establishes there's another person who collected these letters and like put them together. And then, yeah, that person comes back in at the very, very end final few pages, maybe, maybe final 10 or so, something like that. Yeah. I think it, it did add, I don't know, a bit of intrigue to it, but again, I think with, with structural decisions like that, it, to me, 
gosh, and I, I think probably the closest comparisons are in movies, but I feel like if a movie d- did this, where it's like in the first 30 seconds, you're shown a thing you're meant to remember, and then the movie happens, and then in the last five minutes, it's like, oh, remember that first 30? I yeah. just feel like the balance is off there for me. I guess I just, I respond to structural playfulness when it's more consistent or throughout. Mm-hmm. Like I, you know, when I was reading, when I'm in the depths of these, you know, 50 pages of deep psychological ramblings of this character i'm not thinking back to the very very beginning thinking like oh yeah and all this is like kind of a frame story from that one narrator who i don't know Mm -hmm. like it just i don't know i that i get lost and so that stuff doesn't work unless it's consistent have you read um mary shelley's frankenstein yeah right yeah and so like it's actually just a a long like it's a series of letters from uh, yeah. by that one guy, but people tend to forget that it's actually a correspondence style writing. <laughs> of course, yeah, of course. Which I think, yeah, and we expect we being the modern readers, right? We expect yeah. more naturalistic dialogue, and we expect you know narrators if it's in first person to be a little more fallible and a little more, I don't know, I guess realistic or personable are words that come to mind though those might not be the perfect words mm-hmm. and so yeah some of the narration can seem almost too perfectly i don't know constructed or written or something though i think a lot of the reflections in this one a lot of the first person narration works extremely well mm-hmm. um and so to me that that was something that stood up kind of stood the test of time as it were yeah i agree now, did you think, so we talked about the turn at the end. Mm-hmm. Were there any letters throughout that stood out to you as particularly noteworthy? Any moments in his reflections that, I don't know, that jumped out or stood out more than others? I found um, a lot of the quotes that struck me uh, were actually more towards the beginning before he meets yeah. Lottie. Right. Um, because he's actually, where there is looking more at... Um, humanity as a whole and making observations in that way and then once he meets Lottie it's it just becomes more and more uh self-focused so it changes actually it's like almost two different stories that are going on two different styles of writing that are happening um as as we progress in the story but yeah the at, at the beginning when he's talking about um how uh, he's kind of very kind of like pessimistic almost view of like humanity and how people are just kind of like blindly doing things without without being free he uses the word freedom a lot and and they're not like woke you know it's just yeah yeah well and this is this is when you know or from that beginning narration how the novel sort of sets up this is when you can see that I think Goto was sort of an art critic. I don't know if he did art, like fine art, uh, other than obviously his writing and literature, but he clearly had an eye or a mind on art criticism because Werther at the beginning does make claims about how, you know, he almost wishes he could be, I wish I could pull the quote for this. We'll get into some quotes in a second, but uh, he almost wishes he could be a peasant or something, someone who didn't have to burden themselves with worrying about art because art is is the most real way to experience the world, but also right. it's a burden sort of a thing. Mm-hmm. And so it seems like he had art criticism in mind um, as an author, I guess, just as a topic of interest. I think so. Yeah. And, and I think that's a common thing um, with these types of writers. When I was reading up on the Sturm und Drang movement and it's, it's, it's essentially the proto romantic era, right. For, um, yeah. For, western literature but it reminded me a lot of like oscar wilde's 
um, ideas and stuff like that that he expressed in his writing, which is he had a lot to say about art, but he was not an artist. He was a writer. He was, you know, a -hmm. good writer, I think. But um, yeah, they, they all have ideas about what it means to be an artist which also reminds me of James Joyce, but <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, the, the idea that they have all these comments that though they're not, uh, and, and it seems to be that the artist seems to be at odds with the rest of humanity. Um, especially the, the working classes. Yeah, that's fair. The character who's at the center of the novel, Werther, obviously, is the the young man, the artist who lives in the country and becomes obsessed with. So in my novel, to be clear, they never called her Lottie. They called her Charlotte the entire time. So I don't know if Lottie is a short. But anyway, so I'll call her Charlotte. You call her Lottie. It's the same character. It must just be a different name translation. Yeah, I'm, um, wonder, I'm wondering yeah. if it if it did actually if you've got the first edition were the exchanges possibly were the exchanges between um, Lottie and Werther were they like pretty overtly sensual? So this is another thing we should probably get into then. The, mine. So are you saying that in your version you have letters that she wrote to him? There is only uh, there's no actual letters to him in my version. Okay. It's just, um, we do see her perspective, um, once where she kind of has like an awakening of like her role in, in Werther's, um, yeah, towards the end. Yeah. But yeah, no, she's definitely present, but it's in letters that he is writing to his friend again. Right. Yeah. Um, so yeah, no, it's definitely a full picture of her, of her person, you know, of her character. I think you get a good sense. I mean, he describes her so effusively in almost every letter that you, (laughs) but yeah, no, she, she does get a chance to, there's like dialogue for her and things kind of throughout too, not even just towards the end. The towards the end is where you get the most, I don't know, honest representation. Mm -hmm. Did yours have then in, in my edition, there were, I think two moments where he addressed letters to her. Yes. Which I thought were so bizarre and again, ineffective. It was just kind of like, what is this giving me? Why is this here? Is this I, like, what did you make of those then? Those little digressions? Yeah, it, it threw me off as well because it the tone again changes. Like the way that he writes to William is different from the way that he's writing to Lottie. And so it's a different, it, it just threw me off. I was like, hold on, I have to like readjust my thinking right now to to deal mm-hmm. with this aspect. So yeah, I agree. It was and kind I, think, of weird. I think as a bit of characterization though, I guess it worked in this way. I'm looking at the July 25th letter mm-hmm. that he again addresses to her, which is very strange. It's like in the middle of these letters to his friend, he there's just this sudden reference to her. Mm-hmm. Um, and he says, use no more writing sand with the dear notes you send me today. I read, raise your letter hastily to my lips and it set my teeth on edge. And so I think there is there are those kind of explicitly in that case, I think, like sensual references, mm-hmm. which is good because you get so much of his internal you know, business that you wonder how much of it she's privy to, like how much of it is he obsessing and sort of tearing himself open inwardly versus like how much of that does he surface to her, right. um, which I think that gives a slight hint that it's probably not as intense as obviously in the letters, but that there are some references that yeah. he's making it clear to her that he she has a deep sort of affect on him. Yeah, for sure. The, um, when, when I was reading the intro to my book, um, it was saying that Goethe was so, um, negatively affected. He, he did not like the effect of his first edition because of 
all the copycat suicides and stuff like that. So uh, when he went back and rewrote um, the novel and took out a lot of the scenes with Lottie and just kind of like uh, desensualized it in order to um, make it seem more ambiguous uh, throughout, like whether she was actually leading him on and stuff like that. But he was trying to <laughs> lessen the um, the effects of his novel because he was so scared by oh. by how many people had committed suicide wearing Werther's outfit, that yellow vest and stuff like that. They they would dress up like Werther, have a copy of the novel, and like kill themselves. And it was like apparently a lot of people doing it and it scared him. <laughs> so that's why I was asking which edition you had. Cause I'd be interested to see like what scenes he edited. It's weird too, that now that you describe it that way and describe the edits that way. Cause now I actually don't even know which one I have. I'm pretty sure I have the, the more updated one. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause it says it was first published in 1902. And then this Dover one was like in 2006 or something. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I feel like if it, you know, the original original was in 1827 or something. So I feel yeah. like, this must be some kind of new edition, new, newer, but there's a, on, on my page 33, August 15th letter, he describes her or describes an interaction with her this way. Uh, he says, Charlotte invited me over to fix the piano. And then he says, I went this afternoon to tune the piano, but I could not do it for the little ones. The children insisted on me telling them a story and Charlotte herself urged me to satisfy them. Mm-hmm. And so it's, there's a lot of moments like this when, it, from what we're getting from Werther, their friendship, she's explicitly pushing it on and ahead all the time. I mean, she's clearly wants to be close to him. And especially at the end when they do have more direct conversation, she's saying things like, you know, if you can just control yourself, you know, if you can get a hold of your passions, like you can, we can still be friends. She also then towards the end explicitly tells him like for the Christmas presents, you know, come over, but wait those like, wait until Christmas. Do not come back here to see me again, but I have a gift for you. I'm going to give you and the children a gift. And so I feel like there's an acknowledged, like she acknowledges the passions pretty explicitly. I don't think we would count that as leading on though. Right. Right. Well, I mean, there's also the scene. um, He, he seems to, attribute a lot to her and read her into her actions a lot but i remember the one scene where she's got the bird and she like kisses the bird Mm. and she sends the bird over to werther and she's like kiss the bird so so weird right so it's like a a a kiss from her through the bird so that could be construed as her kind of it's funny i pictured that the way i interpreted that was as a total illusion to though i don't know if this dates out correctly but is a total allusion to the Snow White. Like, I don't know if the original uh-huh. Snow White think because it's like when I whenever I think of like humans interacting with wild animals like that, I always think Snow Whiteish, and I don't know. This is the same region of the world anyway. Like, you know, yeah. I, that's that was so. I just admit, I, in my mind, I guess I read that as just in every way she is a symbol of just this like totally perfect transcendent being who's at one with. Uh, you know the hum and drum of the universe kind of a thing like that's mm-hmm. how exalted she is in his mind she can do these you know extremely peaceful things she's like a human embodiment of peace and love in a way yeah. and calm so I, I guess i just read it in that way which is kind of like oh gee she's like snow whiting like she's so <laughs> you know effervescently floating throughout the throughout the world that it's just 
yeah, that's how transcendent she is and that's how he views her. But it's there's a lot of obviously it's a that's explicitly a kiss too, so you could read it that way too. Yeah, I hadn't thought about your perspective like that's that makes a lot of sense to me too. Which is also ironic if she's like this calming presence that she just excites him to so much like passion and like insanity almost that it's it's pretty funny yeah yeah he does describe too on that's in that same letter september 12th i think that's the one um you know he at the beginning i kissed her hand most tenderly like he you know that and that granted that's just a social convention then a much more common greeting but he's definitely taking moments to i don't you know endear himself to her yeah make it explicit what did you find of the, cause the, when we were early in early discussions about this and we were just texting about it, you mentioned that you were reading in terms of, of madness and looking for the language of madness. And that was your focus. What did you find then? Did you find it to be a, an intriguing descent into madness then? Yeah, it actually, um, when I was reading it, it reminded me so much of Frankenstein, um, as yeah. I was reading it, and, and Victor Frankenstein's madness is very much like uh, Werther's madness, uh, where uh, during this time, of course, uh, men have their roles, women have their roles, and the ways that uh, they are portrayed in literature um, are very also like uh, structured, right? Men are like these uh, stoic guys and stuff like that, and then women are supposed to be super emotional, passionate people who have no control over themselves. So I thought it was interesting, and there are so many mentions of this, especially at the beginning of um, of the novel of of Werther himself comparing himself to a child, showing that he has that lack yeah. of self control, which is a sign of of not being in the right mindset and also uh, a lot of his occupations and stuff like that. And also his lack of an occupation, an actual job making money, which is supposed to be what a man is doing at that time. But he, he's very actually effeminate in a lot of ways. And the language that he uses is also pretty effeminate, which is a lot like Victor Frankenstein, um, which showed how Victor Frankenstein was a little bit crazy. Um, Sure. Yeah, no, and that characterization holds up well uh, if you contrast him with some foils. Like, he does go and take a job with some kind of administrative clerk or something. Right. And it goes really poorly. He rails against how the man is so, he just likes technical jargon and doesn't feel anything. You know, that he's so ruled, he's so strict in his rules. And in terms of his just daily life, it's it's too rigid, it's too organized. Yeah. You know, I guess we could say too logical or something. Exactly. And then in, in Charlotte's husband, too, though to a lesser degree, but he, they have a, at least one argument, explicit argument too, about whether you know whether man is meant to like feel things or how you can feel your fullest and express yourself to your fullest. And so there's like explicit versions of this debate even within the text. Yeah. And they do, and they do position Werther directly against like these foil characters of men, basically career men who have administrative roles or kind of just like bland professional careers. Yep. And, and even with Lottie, Lottie is, is a little bit more logical than he is obviously because of her choice in her marriage rather than going with her passions. She chose somebody who's more stable, but uh, the reason that Lottie and Werther connect is because their passions are the same. So that also Mm -hmm. is uh, indicative of his uh, femininity, which at that time, 
and probably I don't know if you remember much about like when we were reading Foucault and his discussion of like the the gender roles and stuff like that. But uh, at that time, um, that I is don't. A sign of- I don't remember it. <laughs> <laughs> I remember one thing from that collection or that book, and it was that he went on this like fifteen page digression about and just one piece of art, like one painting. Yeah. It, was like, yeah. it was a very long analysis of like the effect or the symbolism of one painting. And I was like, Oh boy. We're in it now. Yeah. It was the painting of a ship or something like that. If I remember correctly. Yeah. Yeah. Lots you can read too. Uh, sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off though. What was the, so in in Foucault's time, what was the, the status of madness? It was also a feminine. Right. Kind of trait. Right. Cause uh, femininity is equated to hysteria and stuff like that. Right. It's a lack right, of self-control yeah. and that lack of self-control is um, a symptom of insanity. Yeah. Yeah. Let's use this. Let's use that very good summary then to transition into our what we used to call syntax celebration. But this is the quoting part, though we've already been quoting some things from the work. Um, this is the part where we can explicitly talk about some moments that stuck with us or some just, again, some celebratory syntax sentences we thought were intriguing or delightful or fun. Because um, I have one here that hits on themes we've been talking about. When he, when Werther, he goes to stay with this prince character to just, for, he goes for the spring once just to get away and get some, you know, new perspective, breath of air or whatever. Mm-hmm. He says the, on 51 on my collection, he says, the prince has a taste for the arts and would improve if his mind were not fettered by cold rules and mere technical ideas. He interferes with learned suggestions and uses at random the technical phraseology of artists. And so I think Werther again, in this way is meant to be the bastion of, of feeling in right. the novel, obviously to his detriment and literally to his downfall. That yeah. he's so overcome with his feelings for her that he, you know, takes his own life. But I think that quote is one of the, and there are other characters that do that too. And they're all male characters that, mm-hmm. that foil against him in that way, you know, right. her husband and then the, the administrative guy. But I think that quote too, just shows that what does he like the least? He like, he doesn't like technical arguments and he doesn't like sort of logical proof thinking. And when he gets into those discussions with characters, he gets frustrated though. He does pose his own sort of syllogisms and stuff. Like he has logical arguments about why man can't be restrained and man's passions can't be understood, but um, it doesn't hold up to quite the same logical scrutiny. Yeah. And, and even when he makes those arguments, like with Albert or with um, the, the people that he met while he was um, working, actually working for a short time, uh, they would point out that his actual law, his arguments were not logical because he used generalizations. He conflated ideas. He, he was not good at actually expressing a point and supporting that point with actual evidence. Yeah, yeah, and he and he gets caught under his own. I guess what I yeah he uses the 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 jargon himself in a sense, but it doesn't doesn't seem to have as much of a grasp on it. And then the her husband at one point like just dismisses him in some argument they're having, and right. essentially just says, "Yeah, I don't know. You've just generalized so much that I'm not even sure what you mean to say anymore." And so. That quote, I think, is is just one of many that set his character up in that way, and it's it's an interesting characterization. Yeah, I agree. It's it it also calls into question like how how 
trustworthy is he as our sole reference, right? Yeah. He seems to be pretty arrogant and putting down all these people for their ideas, but he's like, he's like what those people who are like, I'm an idea man, right? I've got all these grand ideas, but I can't actually put any work behind it, right? So he's kind of like that, where he's got all these grand ideas of what should be, but he doesn't know how uh-huh. to actually support it. Well, in his in his defense, then I'll jump. I'll jump too. He certainly puts in the work of trying to be in love with this woman. I mean, <laughs> yeah. he's like he's unemployed and goes over to her house every day just to hang. I mean, that's his whole life basically <laughs> yeah. for most of this novel. He stops making art. Like his whole thing, going to this um, countryside town where the story takes place, is to b- become a more fine artist and to sort of I don't know attune himself to nature. I suppose. And then, yeah, he just falls in love and doesn't do anything. Well, yeah, at the beginning of the novel, he's like, I'm here and I'm I'm in tune with nature. And it's like, I don't need anybody. I don't need anything else. This is all that I need. And he's also escaping from a bad um, love triangle, right? Because he mentioned yeah. that he had gotten in trouble. And we also find out that he had had a love when he was younger who had died because she was older. Is what I gathered from that. Oh, okay. Yeah, I didn't remember. I don't remember that. Yeah. I remember it now that you say this, but yeah. I forgot about that. So he's like escaping from people, right? In order to um, kind of get his art under control and everything like that. He just wants to to bask in the beauty of nature. But then he's even before he starts talking about Lottie, before he even meets her, he's he starts to write to William, like it starts off as just about nature art. Oh, this, these are my thoughts on humanity. And then he goes into, oh, I'm a little lonely. I'm going to search out this town and, Oh, these are the people that I meet. So he's actually, by the time that he meets Lottie, he's, I think lonely enough to where she has such an effect on him because he's so lonely and because and he think- had shunned humanity. Yeah, and these these whiplash contradictions. There are there are probably many of them if you're paying attention to this while reading. Yeah, and I think it kind of gets back to your madness idea that there are clear signs of his own thoughts betraying himself and kind of him living inside of contradictions. Mm-hmm. I, I pulled one for another syntax bit on twenty seven where he's writing a letter to his friend Wilhelm and he says, my pleasure with Charlotte is over. Call it folly or infatuation. What signifies a name, which I'm pretty sure is a Shakespeare reference, but whatever. (laughs) And then at the end of the same letter, he says, but between ourselves, I am always away now when his husband visits her. I feel delighted when I find her alone. So he's (laughs) at both in the same letter, abandoning his passions for her i'm over it it's fine and then talking about he's like scheming in this creepy way of being like well you know i i just want to spend time with her when her husband's gone and so i think there's i mean i pulled that one because it stood out as sort of the most immediate because it's in the literally the same letter i guess but there are contradictions like that all over the place um so i think if you read that as signs of madness then this is a pretty thorough i don't know deep dive yeah, even his uh, when he talks about humanity, I'm trying to find a quote as I talk to you, but um, he's <clears throat> he mentioned um, something about like, oh, this is what humans do. And then he turns around and he's like, oh, but it's OK. Right. So he's like calling yeah. out this bad behavior or this thing that he doesn't agree with. But he's like, eh, it's fine, really. He's yeah, I, I marked up so much of my book just noticing those contradictions and i was like yeah <laughs> this is yeah, I, think, a sign. I think if you're if you're going in if you're listening to this episode and haven't read the sorrows of young werther then 
that might be, I guess my probably the most positive pitch I could give to Reed is if you go into it reading with that lens thinking, okay, this is going to be about a character devolving, you know, their mental state deteriorating. I think it becomes immediately more rich and it doesn't even take long for the story just to get into those ideas and themes anyway. Like it's it, it, once he meets her within a couple of the letters, he's going to extremes and his behavior, if not ch- is changing, is certainly becoming, I don't know, cre- creepy, I think would be a fair modern <laughs> word to slap on it. Yeah. Yeah, he's yeah. definitely obsessive. <laughs> yeah, overbearing, obsessive. Yeah, it's, yeah. <laughs> it's pretty intense. Did um did any sentences stand out to you? Anything oh, in particular? Yeah. So um, one of the things that I noticed was um, I, I talked a little bit about his arrogance and stuff. So one thing was from the May Fourth letter. It says, "Oh, what is man made of that he may reproach himself? I shall do better in the future, my dear friend. I promise you. I shall stop dwelling on the petty wrongs of providence. Nothing is ever his fault, right? Everything is yeah, fate right. and destiny, as yeah. has been my want. I intend to enjoy the present and let the past take care of itself. Of course, best of friends, you're right. There would be less misery in this world if man were not ever ready to recall past evils rather than put up with the indifferent past. So." I thought that was pretty funny because he's saying that he's going to enjoy the present, but he keeps mentioning the past, right? And even with his obsession with Lottie, even after she marries him, uh, marries Albert, sorry, I, I shouldn't be yeah. ambiguous. Yeah, there. Him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> after she marries Albert, he still is dwelling on like, she must love me because in the past, before she got married, she did this. And before that, she did this. So it's he's not actually living for the present like he says that he should and what man should do. Right. He says that it's, it's a folly of man to always recall the past evils, but he just can't he can't rise above that. So he can call out things, but he can't actually like live the life he's saying people should live. Yeah. It's a, it's an idea that I think most people uh, just to paint really generally have an issue with, which is, you know, not dwelling on mistakes in the past, letting that anxiety weigh, weigh you down. It's also structurally then in the story, that's another really good passage of just like contradiction because the entire structure contradicts it. Literally every letter here is a reflection of a past event. So it's like every single event in this novel, every moment is a past moment that he just is dwelling on that he wants to write about and obsess over. The whole thing is just his past obsessions. Yep. Yep. And that, yeah, that only underscores the, I agree that you pulled some quotes from the beginning And I think if you were to ask me, you know, end of term paper type assignment being like, well, can you show that Werther is a character who descended? I think he started mad. I really do. I think he started with, I think his ideas change a bit. I think, you know, that we could easily prove with the text. But I think if you look at the early quotes, he's already making arguments and claims about the nature of humanity and the passions of man and the sort of feeling and the dominance of feeling Mm -hmm. that I think when he does fall in love with Charlotte and things become maybe more absurd, more contradictory, more extreme, I don't think it jumped out to me as a different person. I guess it would just be in that way. I guess you could call it a descent. I think when I hear descent, I think of like a disconnect that there's like a shattering or like a different person Mm -hmm. almost. Mm -hmm. But I think he lays out enough ideas at the beginning to where you can, kind of track the course or track the progress i guess that in that way too it's probably more commendable as a piece of writing because it does feel like it felt like the same character to me i guess is my the shortest summary i could give it didn't feel like a different character it just felt like 
it was the an amplification, an explosion of the earliest ideas. Oh yeah, I, I completely agree. I think that it is the same person. We just see more of uh, the absurdities later. But yeah, the the quotes at the beginning, I immediately knew that this was a character who was not right. <laughs> right, sure, sure. <laughs> Which I found interesting because if he's supposed to be a kind of like hero for the, is he a hero for this story? I think he I think he could be a classic um probably not capital C classic but a classic hero and I could see how this kind of translated in his own time into having a connection with the youth and in, I guess un, very unfortunately inspiring like copycat suicides mm-hmm. obviously that's on the most extreme end but I could see the influence just because and you pulled this quote from the May 26th letter he just talks about basically that if you if you dwell in middle class society and you follow rules and let regulations and you lead a a normal law abiding life or a sort of logical life, that you nothing you ever do will be he says in bad or poor taste. Mm-hmm. But he also kind of also rails against that and says that being constrained by rules and regulations, it's not going to let you have a quote true appreciation of nature and our powers to express it. And I think this is um, is this not just a time honored conflict of being, I guess now we associate it with like your 20s or early 20s, like you're out of college, you're finally out of a strict system of, you know, school and grades. And some people, you know, want it to be something more expressive and free and they kind of rail against the system. I mean, right. it's kind of classic, not, I was gonna say anti-authoritarianism, that's too, not, that's too specific a term, but it's that classic, like trying to buck a system, I guess, mentality. Oh yeah, for sure. I, I agree with that. And and it's the idea that, and, and we even get this not just in, in high school, but also in um, college students who are uh, testing, right, their independence and stuff like that. The idea that, well, moderation, yeah, yeah moderation is good in general for the masses because it makes sure that people are safe, but moderation also stifles creativity. So yeah, within the education system, yeah, all these rules and regulations, they'll make us good enough, right? We'll have a smattering of knowledge, but these rules and regulations also keep me from finding my full potential and and stuff. Yeah. (laughs) And in, and in these, yeah, everything you just said is, is, excellent and it reminds me or underscores this really is an artist novel at the core of it and i think i could see that gota was in that way deeply thoughtful about i don't know what it means to make art or to make that your to dedicate your life to that craft or to that pursuit because i think when you look at art history too the people who end up you know standing out in the textbooks are the people who end up you know as the most copy and pasted artists or whatever are always the ones advancing things they're always Mm -hmm. the avant-garde who then become the you know started a movement or whatever the radicals Mm -hmm. and this is kind of i guess underscores their entire that entire ethos in a broad sense which is you have to feel something new and you have to feel it to its fullest and then push things Mm -hmm. and that's the way you most connect to your nature and to your art yeah, which is interesting, actually, for Werther, because he goes to the countryside in order to become a better artist, but he makes the comment that he's just basking so much in the beauty of nature that he can't, act. he said, I've never been a better artist, 
except I haven't actually drawn anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's great. Uh, that's another great quote. He does become another sentence I pulled I wanted to read is from 35. Yeah, he almost becomes just a nihilist. He says, nature has formed nothing that does not consume itself and every object near it. And the universe to me is a fearful monster forever devouring its own offspring, which I think is a, as intriguing and kind of precise or concise a metaphor as he gets to in the novel and it yeah it shows the kind of void that his mind becomes at times falling in love with this woman and then yeah he doesn't produce anything he did he becomes a self-consumed self-consuming monster it also his journey also reminded me of a, a common like piece of advice i've heard in modern day which is about like having anxiety or depression and how it makes you the most selfish version of yourself, even though you wouldn't think it would. You think, oh, if I'm depressed, I want to get outside of myself. I'm going to become external. But you end up just thinking about yourself constantly mm-hmm. and more than you would want to, you know, being a depressed person. Um, and this is like Werther's journey, it, you know, to a T, I think. Yeah. That remind, it reminded me of that piece of um, wisdom so much. Oh, yeah. He definitely it gets way self-involved. Yeah. Which, which I think is not uh, going back to the idea that it's not like a new thing for him, but maybe just amplified because even uh, the thing that caused him to come to the countryside rather than staying in the city, the, the issue was that he was in that love triangle. Right. And he was saying that he knew that the other girl was like pining for him. And he just kind of like played with her a little bit, just kind of cause he liked the attention. Yeah. So yeah. that that arrogance and self just like focus on self and what he wants and what he needs, I think is. And you could never tell how other characters, again, just based on the, the one hand or one side of nature, the storytelling here with the letters. But he does go to some interactions in society and dinners and things. And some characters react very negatively to him, which he seems to speak honestly about in the letters. He seems to kind of own it in a sense, you know, calling them simpletons or, yeah. or just being like they're not as enlightened and that, you know, he understands it's fine. They can they can scoff at him if they want to. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I wish. Gosh, in a sense, I mean, I I don't question the structure. I think, like I said at the outset, I think the first person is like necessary to this story. Um, But it would be nice to get the correspondence like from another character just thrown in there to deepen things a little bit. Mm. I could be biased, too, because I'm just coming off of reading a sci fi novel or a fantasy novel. And I feel like the order of the day in fantasy to the point that I'm like, I want to read a novel that doesn't do this now. I'm like kind of over. I don't know. I'm like overloaded on it, but it has like multiple points of view. And I feel like me enjoying that that kind of genre and that, that genre doing that a ton where it's like, here's five characters in this novel. You're going to jump points of view. I feel like this was nice to get hyper-focused on just one character's obsessive thoughts, mm-hmm. obsessive level of details. I, I enjoyed the, if you enjoy psychology, this is like a really good book to, to read, yeah. I think. Um, and if you come into it, looking at it from a psychological perspective, it's a great book read, but yeah, for, it would be nice. It would make, I, I agree, make the story a little bit richer if we could see how people actually reacted to him <clears throat> because the trustworthiness of our character is uh, is called into question because we only see his perspective and, and we already know that he's a little crazy from the beginning, right? So how trustworthy is he really? Yeah, and I think maybe we're being overly harsh because as we even said again at the outset, like the entire twist of this structurally is that the ending is another character commenting on Werther. (laughs) Like the whole thing is collected by someone else. So at the end, there is some commentary 
Um, you know, on page 84 on mine, the, the narrator who collected the letter says, we must not forget one remarkable circumstance we may observe from the character of Werther's correspondence that he had never affected to conceal his anxious desire to quit the world. He had often discussed the subject with Albert and w- even with Charlotte. It um, had not unfrequently formed a topic of conversation, which is true. I mean, it's not like the suicide is shocking at the end. He taught, I just quoted the thing from 35 or whatever about how the nature is an all consuming monster that's mm-hmm. going to devour us all. It, it only creates to destroy. Right. Essentially. And so, yeah, it's, it's certainly not something. I don't think, again, if we were to peek into another character's correspondence about Werther, I don't know. I feel like he was being honest in some ways. I feel like that was his whole pitch. I feel like he wasn't self aware about everything. But that in his lack of self-awareness, you can like infer the gaps. Like you said, there's contradictions littered on so many, like on nearly every page. I don't think he's aware of those, but he, but the way it's written makes it clear that there are. I guess that's just a sign of a, a well-written, in that way, story, I guess. I, I like, um, when talking about self-awareness, uh, I like the idea of self-awareness as a theme in this novel because yeah. he, were there thinks that he is very self-aware and that he's you know very knowledgeable and philosophical and that he understands himself completely and oh i i know this about myself and i'm going to react in this way but i'm not actually going to do anything about it but then we get to lottie who doesn't maybe subconsciously she knows that she's kind of toying with Werther and his emotions by doing whatever she does when she interacts with him but it's not until like the end um when we see uh when Albert goes away for a day after she tells um Werther not to come back until Christmas and he shows up anyway when he finds out that Albert's not there and um and then they have that exchange between them where he read uh he gives her the translations of that play did you have did you read? yeah yeah i was like yeah. wow this yeah. play is intense um but yeah oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> um but then yeah. they have that scene where he kisses her and then they both are like well he's crying she's not really crying <laughs> he's like he's uh-huh. thrown himself at her feet and is crying and saying you know all these things it's not until after he leaves that she starts to sit she sits down and she's like what just happened and why did it happen and what are my true feelings for were there and stuff like so that's when that right. self-awareness happens for her which is also funny because later she knows that he's going to commit suicide with her husband's rifles, right? With her husband's pistol, rather. Right. So, Didn't she, she gave them to him or something? Yeah, she gave yeah. them to um, Werther's um, Yeah, the servant, servant. or something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's it's funny that she's, she's got this certain self-awareness finally, right? Like she's she knows that she's to blame for some of this stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And she realizes that she does have feelings for Warther and it's, it's not just brotherly of, you know, sisterly affection that she has for him. Like she had always proclaimed. It's actually, she has some deeper feelings for him than that. And, but then she turns around and she's like, Oh, I know, I know he's, he's been talking about suicide, but surely he wouldn't. Nah, but I'm going to hand no, him I mean, these guns anyway. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and surely he couldn't use the guns for that anyway. There's, that's, that's not the method he would choose. No. Right. Yeah. So I think, I think self-awareness is an interesting, 
uh, theme, mm-hmm. especially considering that this is like a, a romantic style to Sturm and Drang uh, uh, novel. So, mm-hmm. and I think too, and how you implicated her in that regard, it's funny. It's not something I thought a ton about because, again, just the way that it was narrated, I felt like enveloped in his character. She had moments in the story that intrigued me and added some complexity, but I didn't. I'd never thought about her in that same lens. But there are definitely enough moments to. Um, I wouldn't say nearly a word like indict her, but it, it's enough complication to that if you went in with that reading or if you looked at the novel in that way and thought, you know, what is her involvement or what is her, does she have a, enough self-awareness in this? I think there's, yeah, a lot you could unpack. I frankly had not, yeah, I hadn't thought about some of those angles in, yeah. when I was reading it myself. Let's... um. Let's conclude with some critical assistance. This is where we admit that everything we just said was probably not good. And we go to the experts. Yeah, I think it's important uh, if you're engaging in the literary, you have to admit your own fallibility at times. We like to end the book clubs with just any outside perspective we can find, whether it's just like a review or an essay. In this case, there was a lot of criticism. Obviously, this is like a a world literary classic, I guess. I'd never even heard of this novel before you suggested it, so... You know, what do I know about world <laughs> literature? But uh, yeah, apparently this is like a international bestseller. One of the first ever. Is that true? Was yeah. That true? Yep. One of the first international. It was like translated all across Europe and everything. Yeah. Fascinating. Um, I pulled something from just the introduction to mine, which was written. It's the introduction was written in the 1800s. So still pretty fresh in terms of perspective. <laughs> And it, and it said something I thought was pretty meaningful to a 2020 reader, if you're listening to this or who knows when, and you want to pick this up. It says it, the, this novel, quote, for the first time attempted the more accurate delineation of a class of feelings which are deeply important to modern minds, but for which our elder poetry offered no exponent and perhaps could offer none because they are feelings that arise from passion, incapable of being converted into action, and belong chiefly to an age as indolent, cultivated, and unbelieving as our own. And I think and it's a rich quote itself with you know a dozen ideas that we could talk about. But it being a, a thoroughly modern novel, maybe one of the first ones where you have this sort of pathetic artist caught up in a modern modern machinery again i think that comes best to the fore when he's like bucking against having a job basically or like going just being an administrator or a clerk or just kind of settling into a a cog like career um i think it is a uniquely in that sense i and again that was not something i thought about while reading it because obviously the the world of the story seems pretty foreign um so it's not you know modern in the most literal way but in that way it does kind of deal with a character who's caught in a situation that, yeah, it does feel modern. And this might've been one of the first novels to articulate those like passions and that indolence, I guess, which, yeah, I thought was well said. Yeah. I think it, it might strike a chord with a lot of people today too, because we have so many people that are creating new jobs rather than, you know, staying within, Oh, I'm just going to do this job because my dad did this and, and his dad did yeah. this. But we've got so many like more jobs that are being created that nobody had thought of like 20 years ago. Um, But yeah, the idea that I don't have to, I want to do this and I want to make my life more meaningful instead of doing this uh, job that everybody else has been doing. I think that's, that might, um, that might appeal to other readers, modern readers and, and kind of like connect to what's going on in our society today. I do wonder too that when the quote says 
Um, they are feelings that arise from passion incapable of being converted, converted into action. I suppose in the, in the novel, the way that quote comes up the most obviously is that he can't convert his love of Charlotte into action or that there's no recourse for him to like fall in love or there's no way for him to act on his passion. And I guess there's like a really sinister way you could read that quote, which is like, because she has a little more freedom and choice, she can like marry for safety and then just kind of keep him as a friend and be like, yeah, let's just be friends. You know, I'm not going to be like your mistress or I'm not going to run away with you and you can't like take me away. I guess that would be the more sinister way to read that quote. I don't know if that, I don't know if that criticism was meant to mean that, but I don't know when you look at the passions of the story, isn't that like the, the one at the forefront that seems like the most obvious passion that can't be converted. Yeah. I think, um, when I read that particular part of the quote, I was thinking of like, being too invested in something. And for me, that was Lottie in a big sense, but also his art where he was so Mm. passionate about his art at the very beginning, even before Lottie. And we see that he cannot actually convert that passion into art. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And it's something that he, well, we've covered this too well, but it's something that he brings up over and over that he's, you know, I'm, I'm a better artist than ever, but producing nothing. Right. So I think that it's, it's the idea that you're, if you lose yourself in your passion, if you, if you don't take a step back from that in order to produce, then you won't be able to produce. It's, it's the idea of being lost and not having the control over yourself, I think. Yeah. Interesting. And I guess that maybe that is a uniquely modern, uh, issue. Interesting. Did you pull any uh, quotes for, or critical responses or reactions that you wanted to briefly discuss before we wrap up? Sure. Um, the one that I pulled was actually from the introduction in my book. Um, and that introduction nice. was written in 2005, apparently. Oh, nice. Um, yeah, there we go. <laughs> uh, and this guy is somebody who has obviously studied uh, Goethe for a while, but he says, from the very start, the notoriety of the sorrows of young Werther flooded its relationship with the reader. That is, long before it became clear that it would be one of Western civilization's great books, the forerunner of the modern psychological novel, and the apogee of the Sturm und Drang movement, it has never been possible to read the sorrows of young Werther without the interference of its reputation. It never got that grace period between publication and the moment when fame distorts the relationship between a book and its readers before the critics speak and the word of mouth builds before the climb in sales and eventually if all goes well the ascension the awards the new editions the translations the place in the canon so uh i pulled that quote because um i thought it was first of all kind of funny because you had never heard of the sorrows of young werther and you had no idea about like the the uh the background with it as far as like its its notoriety and its effect on um other people other readers during that time uh to the to the point that actually a psychological like the copycat suicide is actually called the Werther effect like they named it after this novel oh fascinating I didn't even know that see I wanted to come in harsh I don't know who wrote that intro but that strikes me as the kind of dangerous insular mind of an academic person who would write that quote Mm -hmm. because that's just an absurd quote like not only had I never heard of this novel, I'd never heard of Gotha before. That I'm I'm pretty sure I like. I it's just such a that quote is just so absurd to me. Like 
it has never been possible to read it without interference. Like I'm pretty sure I just did that, didn't we? Or didn't I? I, <laughs> I know. I think. That's why I pulled it because I was like, no, this is perfect because Travis doesn't fit any of this. <laughs> to whom did he? And it's like I I struggle with a quote like that because it's like, man, I have a one of my degrees is in like lit- English literature. Yeah. Like how? And granted, this was a translated work, to be fair, mm-hmm. but like who's he writing that quote about like other academic people he knows probably like he, he, the, that quote is meant for other Gota scholars or whatever. Like <laughs> yeah. they have not encountered it outside of the context of his reputation, but yeah. like, I'm pretty sure I just did this. I think, <laughs> I don't know. I also, um, you know, I've got my, my undergrad and my master's in English and yeah, yeah. I was never uh, assigned Goethe. The, and I, I in fact took a, um, a class as an undergrad um, that studied um, literature from non-speaking, non-English speaking works and Goethe was not among them, but I did read Gunther Grass, which he wrote the tit, the, 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 the grass, the tin, tin drum. I don't oh, think okay. It's called, but he's another German writer. So I read a different German writer, but not. Yeah, Gerta. and I and I did. It's it's like I'm running through the rolodex of college classes that I can remember now. And I did one international focus class, but we did some weird things in that class. Weird meaning like, I like man, the the world literature canon is. I, I just making any claim like that to me is absurd. Like I think. Just dial it back a little bit, intro guy or intro lady. <laughs> like, it's okay. We get it. It's in, in deeply influential, and that's fine. But to say things like that has never been possible to read it. Like, yeah. really? <laughs> You're sure? Like, I would a high schooler have encountered this? Again, I think of, I think in terms of tears. Like, okay, let's assume you're a high school grad. There's about a 0% chance you've ever heard of this person or heard of his work, and at least, again, in American public school. Like, there's probably some German um like deep language school in the u.s where like maybe he's studied in high school for some reason but it's like okay high school has about a zero percent chance of knowing who this is or what it you know what the work is a college student who even again i that was like one of my degrees was focused on this i would say the percentage is still pretty low yeah maybe if you're like a philosophy student you have to read some of his maxims or something or maybe if you're an art history student some of his criticism i guess it seems like he was kind of an art critic but even then, like that also doesn't even seem to be that high of a percent chance. There's a lot of that stuff. <laughs> I just I don't know. What a hilarious quote to me. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, but but the I did like that it is called uh, the forerunner of the modern psychological novel because that's how I read it was as a psychological yeah. novel. So yeah, and that part 100% agree with you. It's very well said. It it is deeply psychological and kind of even predates a lot of terminology, even coined a term like you said, I, I suppose. Mm. And that's yeah, I think it's a credit to the depth of it. It's hopefully our discussion has shown the listener. Yeah, it's it's well worth a, a deep dive if you want to investigate something with psychological richness and depth, and even you know contradictions throughout. It's in that way a good characterization work and it's intriguing. I agree. I don't think it's, you know, structurally, I think we talked enough about the structure, but I don't think that was the thing that gripped me. Um, but it's just like a character moment to moment study and with the psychology in it. I thought it was b- rewarding, like pretty rewarding. I agree. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it. And um, I, even if I came into it, reading it without having any before knowledge of like what was going on at that time, I would still find it interesting, I think, as far as like the characterization. 
Yeah, definitely. And hey, you will never hear me complain of a novel that comes in under 100 pages. Huge respect. Big, big time. Big time respect. Something about picking up a volume these days that's like over 400 pages just makes me... It's like knowing you have to watch a prestige TV drama that's like already five seasons in. I just kind of feel a heaviness in my shoulders. And I'm like, oh, I, sh- I should do that. I know I should, but do I want to? So I think this is a good one to at least underscore that, yeah, you can get such richness out of a one sub 100 page text i think i appreciate that kind of laser focus yeah this is it's funny i i'm gonna attack this on at the end just as a really side thought but there's um there's a podcast i listen to called the hottest take which is kind of a jokey podcast that the ringer makes and anyway the whole premise is that their staffers come on and they pitch either kind of like absurd or extreme ideas that they believe in and then they just debate it really short it's like each episode is five to ten minutes that's the whole premise is like i'm going to say this kind of inflammatory thing people will react to me and then we'll get out but i had they had one the other day that was the person and their take was all short stories ever are bullshit and like if you're going to do it just write a novel and like don't make me read your crappy short fiction and it's funny because i have i have obviously as the podcast is like meant to i have extreme reactions to a lot of their you know takes quote unquote that one hit me the, the most viscerally though i was like that's just such a disgusting misunderstanding of what a short story is even meant to be exactly um like i think we should applaud distillation in art more than like, God, yeah, just because you have a great short story idea doesn't mean I want to read your 600-page rambling novel version. I think that's such an awful take. Like, I, <laughs> I just had such a, like, I recoiled in the, at the heart of my being. Because, um, I, I, yeah, the implication, I think, in her, essentially her whole argument was she was equating length to um, skill and effort. Right. When it's like, you can't put in more effort into something that's in, immediately, like, shorter, mm-hmm. which is, I, I guess I just, uh, maybe a philosophical disagreement there. But anyway, this just reminded me of that because it was like, would I want this pay, this novel to be twice its length? I definitely don't. The only way maybe I would have desired that would have been other correspondence just to add some kind of other intricacies to it, other characters, letters, whatever. But I think it's it almost hits a full arc of the story and has enough dimension in its you know sub 100 page length. I thought that really worked for it. Oh, yeah, I agree. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thanks so much for joining me, Amanda. This was great. We will certainly pick up the mics again soon. I'm not sure when you want to jump in. I officially, though, let's get this on record. I disinvite you from any Charles Dickens follow-up. I refuse. I have no interest. (laughs) You will not talk me into it. Uh, There's no goddamn way. I'm done. I'm going to read these. I'm going to read these Charles Dickens short stories and review them maybe this week, I think by Friday, and then I'm out, man. No I, way. I do not blame you. I do not like Charles Dickens, and I've not read his short stories, but I can't imagine they're any better than his novels. So <laughs> I, just, I don't know. I'm going to I'm trying to because I'm mostly done with it. I have to finish the second story. I just have to think of a way to review it. I, again, I've been trying to come up with like fun structures for the reviews. I don't know. I'm coming to blank on this one. I might just go back to like my general, just whatever formulaic review structure, which is fine. I might just do that because I'm kind of out of ideas at this point. Um, didn't did not enjoy them. There's a preview for you listeners if you're going to listen to that episode. <laughs> um, I'll try and dig into the why of it. Maybe I'll come. On, I don't know. I have to come up with some kind of gimmicky thing. It'll make it more fun to review. Oh, you know what? Like one of my problems with Dickens is that he's way too wordy, right? He takes 20 million sentences to describe one thing. So maybe you could take some quotes and distill it down to like 
one short sentence that could have made it better. <laughs> yeah, I could, I could, could I be so bold as to rewrite? You know, it's like, here, let me rewrite this for you, Charles Dickens. What an arrogant thing to do, but whatever. <laughs> I, you know, I'll, just, I'll join the, the, I'll join the legions of other arrogant people online. Like, here you go. Let me, I'll fix this for you, man. No problem. <laughs> let me, let me take this legendary writer and just remake his work for him. I, no problem, man. I got you. I'd, I'd listen I, to it. <laughs> honestly, it might, that might be, I might do something like that. I'm not sure what I'm going to do. I haven't, I haven't given it too deep of thought. I have just been trying to like slowly wade my way through the stories. So who knew that I would have believed in 2020 that uh, teenage Jane Austen's writings were more enjoyable than like young adult, young man, Charles Dickens. <laughs> oh, and I forgot to, to apologize uh, about the Jane Austen episode. I said that right. she was Edwardian, but actually she's Georgian. So Whew. that was my bad. Man, I know that I wonder how many listeners waited this long to get your apology. <laughs> they just listened to the whole thing. <laughs> they listened to the whole thing with bated breath thinking like she's going to fucking apologize. I know she's going to apologize. She has to. <laughs> she, can, she has to say something about it. <laughs> my bad. Uh, Sorry, guys. <laughs> yeah, fantastic. When I went to put on our Instagram, which um, listeners follow us on Instagram at The Stumped, but when I went to draw, I drew a dress just to promote it and post something up there. Mm-hmm. And when I Googled the dresses to like look at to draw one, I definitely did put in Georgian dresses. I did not put in Edwardian or Victorian. Nice, because they are very but different I, dresses. <laughs> yeah, I, well, presumably, I assume. Why else would they have different names for them? You know? It was the Regency period, so Edwardian was... King Edward, right? And then Georgian was King George and Victorian is because of Queen Victoria. So there we go. Okay. Yeah. I, I too segment my life by the royal <laughs> the royal family of England or of Great Britain. Yeah. So we're in the so. Elizabethan t- two stage, I guess, the Regency period. Nice. <laughs> the, the Elizabethan dose. Yeah. It's my favorite one. It's way better than the other one. Uh, talk about another thing i just can't muster any emotion to care about they've been in the news lately though let's not do this tangent though i kind of want to but let's not (laughs) let's instead close the episode and not let me digress about the royal family in the news um for 10 minutes no one needs that (laughs) if you stuck with us thanks for listening again we will have amanda back on sooner than later though just not about charles dickens Uh, i'll let you take your pick amanda we can do we can find some way to follow up maybe we'll do another book club i think this format works i don't know really well it always fits an hour perfectly and so hopefully we can pick another thing you and i can agree to if not we'll try and get you on one of the book reviews in the little black classic soon thanks so much for joining us thank you i had so much fun my pleasure and until next time folks we'll see you between the classics 